This is Inside the Box. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor. I am excited to be back today with my good friend, David. David Blakesley, how are you doing? I'm doing really good, Trevor. This is, you know, feels like a little bit of a comeback for me. I have not done any podcasting since, I think, late April. None at all. Um, And it's kind of an interesting, because it was not a planned break. I uh, did my uh, most recent episode of Criterion Reflections, which was so long ago, I can't even remember (laughs) what it was right now. But in any case, um, the month of May came and went. uh, The the next one that I have coming up on that series is Brian De Palma's Sisters, which I won't get into my thoughts on the film too much, but it's like, it's not like a film that I'm naturally gravitating toward. Um, I've watched it a couple times. I've found my way to find things I appreciate about it, but it's not really my jam, my, my kind of typically favorite film. And then there's been a complications of guests and things. So everything just kind of got put on hold a little mm-hmm. bit. And I've just had a lot of other life stuff going on. I'm not like really yeah, missing podcasting. I haven't been feeling like, oh no, everything's <laughs> gone off the rails. I've lost momentum, but it, it sort of feels a little bit like that. Um, but it's fine because I've got plenty of other fun stuff that I'm doing, but it does feel good to be back in the chair and on the mic and talking to you again, uh, especially since this, these are some of my favorite films of all time that we're about to get into today. Ooh, excellent. Excellent. I'm excited to, to dig into it. Uh, yeah, we, we had been we had planned to do this episode. Uh, it's been a few times we've had to push it back for uh, health reasons, actually. Yeah, um, yep. I had to call in sick there a while back, yeah. Yeah, and I had uh, family health things that took me away for a, a period of time. But all is well on my end, and, and you sound great. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad that... I'm glad we're back. It's always so yes. nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. It feels, it's, feels it's like home. <laughs> hand in glove, you know, just feels... Yeah, settle settle in and have a good conversation with Trevor and uh, get into it with a, with a, another exceptional Criterion Collection box set. Yeah, today we'll be talking about the Kotze Trilogy. And I remember well the rumors that this was going to be a Criterion release. And I didn't know what these films were at that time. Oh, I had no okay. idea. I just knew okay. that Kotze was spelled a little strange. I mean, it was, you know, some of those things that get talked about on Criterion forums around when people bring them up and they're just words to me and I haven't had a chance to look into them. They sound exotic. They sound who knows what, you know, your mind can go anywhere and the Kotze trilogy is definitely one of them. Uh, the Coker trilogy mm. was similar where I'm like, well, what is this? I know who the filmmaker is, but what's the Coker trilogy? You know, I love yeah. We've done that episode, but mm. the, the Kotze trilogy. And um, then I remember when we got the, the little drawing of a few different uh, letter C's each uh, captured in some way with chains and ropes or whatever. And uh, yes. here Caught we are. C's. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, that's interesting. So you had not really had any familiarity with these films up until Criterion's announcement. That's that's right. That's, 2012 okay. is when this set came out. So I have, you know, it's really weird because it really does seem like yesterday. I'm a I'm new yeah. to these films, <laughs> but man, I yeah. guess I've been living with them for you know over a decade now. <laughs> well, I've followed these films from their original release, mm-hmm. so I've you know I've grown up with the, the series. You could almost say. Um, Koyana Scotsy came out in 1983, uh, 
pretty pivotal year in my life. A lot of things happened, uh, but I saw the film that year and was completely blown away. Just like this was mm-hmm. like something like nothing I'd ever seen, but something that seemed like I'd been yearning for, or I just, it just connected with me on such a, a visceral level. Um, the capacity and the, and the, um, the potential for film to just open up this kind of new perspective on, on life and existence and all of that big stuff that mm-hmm. I was uh, 21 at the time going on 22, uh, just really kind of settling into, and even in a process of, defining or maybe even redefining who I was and this film just I don't know it 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 shook me in a most positive way um and you know it's definitely a kind of a, a head trip film a very multi-sensory experience with the music the images and all the associations that came up with it and I was like I, I like I said I'd never seen anything like it but uh, I think I must have seen it a, a couple times in the theater and I, it, it seems like it must have done some kind of you know, commercially successful business, at least played long enough. And I, I made my way back. <laughs> uh, and then Pawakatsi, I don't know. I can't recall seeing that in the theater, but I do remember hearing about it. And I think I probably rented a VHS back in the day to, to take it in for my first time. Years later, got the Koyaanisqatsi, Pawakatsi DVDs, and then was following the saga of whether or not this trilogy would ever be um, mm-hmm. completed because there, it had been talked about. Um, Godfrey Reggio had, had made it known, uh, and I was finding articles, finding news bits about him that, that this was part of a trilogy. Uh, but it took a long time to get there. But I did see Nakoikatsi when it um, opened in a theatrical setting back in 2002 or 2003, whatever year that was. And uh, was was really happy to see that the trilogy did reach its completion point. Uh, we'll talk about our reactions to the films themselves, but yeah, I've I've loved this series, and I, I put Kleana Scotsy in my kind of personal canon of top ten films of all time, uh, which that that canon is kind of weighted towards films that I've had a lot of experience with and have been kind of part of my sort of personal education and reflection. Uh, for, for many years. So it's it's harder for a new film that I haven't seen before to break into that because I just don't have that longevity. But this is one that goes pretty far back in, in my life and is pretty definitive. So yeah, the fact that Criterion put this, uh, what I think is a definitive edition together is very gratifying and just another, uh, you know, uh, feather in their cap as far as a, a brand that I trust and admire and appreciate so much. It is hard to imagine a better you know, a more definitive edition than, than this, mm-hmm. this Blu-ray set. Uh, the films do look, I think as good as, uh, as you can get, unless they, unless they do a, some kind of remastering and, and uh, push some of the, you know, especially Koyanis Katsi out on uh, in, in some kind of 4k or higher format, but I actually mm-hmm. think it looks just fantastic. It, it <laughs> on, really does. Yeah, on this absolutely. Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess maybe if there's more colors or something like that, maybe that would be fun. Uh, but do, do you want to, should we do something a little bit different this time? Sure. I feel like, I feel like we, we talk about the movies and then at the end we're like, Oh, and Oh, the, the set. Yeah. There's, you know, it comes, <laughs> it comes off. And I think appropriately is a bit of an afterthought. 
maybe this is a good one to say, why is this a definitive edition? What is on mm-hmm. this set? And then dig into what these supplements are talking about in turn, not specifically, but let's dig into the films with our own, sure. our own thoughts. Sure. Um, yeah. So yeah. this is a, this is a great, a great set with a, a lot of, a lot of good supplements on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also the fact that these films are a little difficult to talk about because they're plotless. There's no narrative. We can't really yeah. follow the characters as they go through their saga and, you know, and, and podcasting, there's nothing, you know, well, there's plenty of things that are fun to talk about, but one of the fun things is, is getting into a really well-crafted story and, you know, the mm-hmm. playing the characters off of each other and, and all of the dramatic, uh, you know, developments that go on in a, in a well-crafted saga. You don't really have any of that here. This is very impressionistic. I mean, the the images are vivid. The the music is you know very emotional and very very powerful and direct. Uh, but it's really up to each viewer to determine what do you make of all of this because yeah. you know it's it's all free association in some ways. I mean, there is a concept, there is a plan and a scheme, but it's not you know uh, you know programmed out to the point where you just can obviously see what connects one scene to the other, you know? And so as, as films, it is a little bit difficult to talk about because, you know, we can remember perhaps vivid images or sequences that stood out to us, but it's, it's just a little different kind of conversation. (laughs) So I think, I think your uh, proposal to just talk about the set as a thing or as a, as a collection of, of, of things is probably a pretty good (laughs) place to start. So it really is within the supplements that, I mean, I guess I don't know how much of it was just that I had kind of heard about these films. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, and, and I'm going to use this carefully. Maybe I knew what people said Reggio was all about and how he was approaching these and some of his intentions with putting these images together um, to show our, our supposed progress and some of the costs of that, as well as some of the beauty of it. Um, but it's really within the supplements where we get a lot of discussion, uh, from the folks who put these things together, you know, Reggio himself with, uh, with both several, several supplements that he, where he's talking about these throughout their lifetime, including a new Mm -hmm. afterward. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have Philip Glass, uh, the, the composer, you know, uh, very, very esteemed, and and uh, some of his thoughts on things, as as well as the the cinematographer, um, and right the second, oh, <laughs> as well as the John cinematographer Kane. Mm-hmm. John Kane and Rob Frick uh, that I'm thinking of too about Koyanis mm-hmm. Katsi, uh, his his kind of coming from the outside in, mm-hmm. and so there there's a lot of folks who have been influenced by these films that that. Uh, that we have some of their thoughts in both the supplements, but also the, the essays and such. So it's, it's a rich there and they show how rich these films can be mm-hmm. uh, beyond just their visceral experience of sitting down and watching them, the various ways that you can go to pursue the ideas, the, the images, what this can say to you. And I'm excited to do that with you, but mm-hmm. yeah, these, these yeah. supplements I think are, I'm, I'm sure they'll influence my discussion coming at these films as this set and not 
just going into the theater and having to deal with them on, on my own for a long time. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, uh, Reggio gives you a lot of handles, really all the different commentators, all the speakers. And and even though Godfrey Reggio is the director, he's the auteur, he's the, the name that's primarily associated. Of course, Philip Glass is a very mm-hmm. close partner in all of this because the music is so integral. I mean, soundtrack music is always important in films, but these really are like audio visual symphonies you could say um and and so philip glass's contributions are essential these films would not be the same if they did not have the music you know propelling us along or or pulling us in in various ways but reggio himself uh, makes it very clear on numerous occasions throughout the different interviews of what a collaborative process this is Hmm. and i think in one of the panels that's on the Koikatsi disc he talks about you know he knows his place which is more of the conceptual uh theoretician and and kind of he 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 casts a vision that his other collaborative partners uh, contribute to through their operations of the equipment whether that's uh you know cameras editing uh you know digital treatments the in particular for nakoikatsi or film techniques, you know, some of the colorings and dissolves, the, the, the hyperspeed, the slow motion, all of the things that kind of, you know, add that extra texture. He's not really doing any of that stuff. He's just got ideas or concepts, through lines that everybody else sort of attaches onto. And of course, he's taking in their input and, and, and these ideas are kind of growing out, out, of, out of a community, if you will. And I think that's just another really beautiful piece of these of these movies is that they are the product of a, of a group of people who dedicated themselves to, you know, presenting these visions, this uh, this uh, multisensory experience to audiences, uh, both. Uh, it's it is a form of entertainment uh but it's it's trying it's striving for something deeper than that it's, it's trying to stir up uh you know thoughtful reflection um perhaps even a degree of application and what are you going to do about your life now now that you know these things now that we've brought this these concepts these themes before you um you know does that change you does that does that affect your outlook on things your the way you relate the way you conduct yourself as a human being i mean yeah that's that's pretty lofty sounding stuff i i can imagine you know sitting here listening to a podcast uh you know touching on those types of subjects but i really feel like that's that's the canvas that's the, the that's the um altitude that that they're that they're reaching for here uh ratio did not uh, aspire to be a big time movie director. Uh, he, he's a, yeah, he is a visionary. He is a philosopher of sorts and he wants to use the medium of film to, you know, create experiences and insights in those who are perhaps on his wavelength to a certain extent and maybe find something to appreciate about the way he's expressed himself along with, as I said, his collaborative partners. Let's talk about Reggio himself again. This I don't I don't know a whole lot about him other than what is presented to me in this set. Mm-hmm. I love his current uh, picture on Wikipedia from just a few years ago. It's twenty twenty from last year. It's twenty twenty two. I mean, where he looks like a rugged <laughs> prophet. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, He's got this yeah, massive, really. long, scraggly beard. He's wearing a hat that looks like it was you know woven by him the night before, <laughs> you know, just, I mean, it's an impressive picture. Uh, 
again, it looks like someone who has just come down from the mountains <laughs> to, <laughs> Truly, to, yeah. to, to, to share with us. Um, and, and so my, my knowledge of him is really based on this kind of stuff that he, you know, he, he does have a, a past of trying to, to kind of, um, meditate. And I mean, he, he has, he has indul- indulged is the wrong word. He is engaged in, Mm-hmm. Uh, separating himself from society with uh, yeah. meditation, prayer, long fasting, um, uh, a man, a monastic life, yeah. right? Exactly. Full vows. He was part of a community. He wasn't just a hermit off in a cave mm-hmm. somewhere. He was living under discipline of, of a monastery and, and all the orders that, that come with that. And that was like his youthful formative experiences, like from mm-hmm. his teenage years into his mid to late twenties. So yeah, right. he was definitely on a different path than your standard whiz kid <laughs> movie maker, right? <laughs> That's right, and it, it kind of makes sense that he might be drawn to some of the people that he, he says that are influences in terms of filmmaking, like um, uh, Brackage, Dan Brackage. Mm-hmm. Just what can I do with this medium in order to express some things that are otherwise inexpressible about our modern life? How can I use a modern medium to show? maybe the perils uh, and the problems and the, you know, how can I share some of what I've learned by separation, by mm-hmm. engaging with this uh, it, otherwise potentially alienating uh, medium. And it's, it's an impressive uh, project to, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I yeah. haven't seen anything else that he's done either, but you know, these are the, the, the main ones, but I, 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 you know, he's got, I don't think there's a whole other... lot. I mean, that's, that's the other, really one of the fascinating things about this set is it gets into his very earliest work. And the only thing that I'm aware of that he's made, uh, other than what's on this somewhere in these discs is, um, a film called visitors, which came out, I think in 2013 and is even referenced, I think in print in the, in the, booklet essay that mm-hmm. mentions that uh, Reggio and Philip Glass were collaborating on a film that was yet to be released at the time of the publication of this set. And I, I haven't watched all the visitors. I did actually sample it a little bit this morning. I just looked mm-hmm. it up and found it. You can watch it for free on YouTube. And uh, it's a black and white film composed of 74 shots, uh, a combination of face shots, uh, some landscapes and some objects. Uh, slow moving. It really feels like it's not really part of the Kotzi trilogy, but very similar, especially in that kind of fourth wall breaking of faces looking directly into the camera and holding on those shots long enough for you to sort of assess a little bit of the character or the personality or even the story behind that, that face, whether it's a child, an adult, an old person the diversity of humanity of course is represented it's it's a it's kind of a global collection of of faces and and um you know expressions uh so but again i just kind of skimmed through it a little bit just got a little bit of a vibe or a sense of what that's about and and i think that's probably maybe the extent of his career like i just looked up that photo you referenced it's like yeah it doesn't look like he's making movies these days <laughs> well there is some mention on here of one called once mm-hmm. within a time um okay. that was uh a 2022 film oh, that okay. was produced by does it say Soderbergh? Where is this information? Yeah, here? Soderbergh was actually the producer of Visitors as well. So, oh, okay. yeah. Okay. So that could be an interesting thing too. Uh, and and 
so a quick question, and then we can get back to the real the subject. But with visitors, yeah. also composed the, the, by the the score by Philip Glass. How was it? How how, how did you did you get oh, a the, sense the, the as the to score? whether you liked the score for visitors? It's it's very it's very low key. Yeah, it's it's I, I love Philip Glass. I mean, it's he's definitely a a, a composer uh, who I I'm just drawn to whatever he does. It just has that kind of. Um, Lure, alluring quality to it. It's a little bit trance-inducing, if you will. Uh, I, I kind of like that kind of meditative, repetitious, kind of cyclical type of music. Um, again, I I haven't listened to it in, in completeness or anything, so I, I I can't say where it ranks. Um, I would say it's probably not going to register as dynamically as any of the Katsi films because it's it is it is very slow and tranquil it feels like the project of a couple of old men, you know, who are, hmm. you know, not really looking to stir <laughs> things up in the same way that the earlier films in particular, really all three of the Katsi films, I think are, are, are beautiful, but they're also very provocative and they they definitely are trying to unsettle the viewer a little bit or ask fundamental questions about uh, kind of the, the moral and ethical, uh, underpinnings of our of our civilization of our whole way of life and uh, while you know i don't think either of them are are haughty enough to think that their film is going to somehow overturn the whole system they are really asking us to 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 just you know reflect on our complicity uh particularly if we are in a position of advantage or on sort of the top end of the food chain so to speak uh, you know, if we're profiting from some of the the misery and destruction and exploitation that's captured in different ways in these films, uh, where are we at with that? Is is that just fine? It's is it just the way it is? Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, I kind of meandered from the the question about how's the how's the music there, <laughs> hey, no, but but it, it's it's right. Philip Glass doing his thing, and yeah, and and the fact that 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 Reggio himself did make a film as recently as last year. I kind of eat my own words, but I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I, I definitely want to see if I can find that somewhere and, and check it out. Well, uh, getting back to the, the Kotsu yeah. trilogy then, sure. there's probably some listeners who are like, I still haven't seen these. What, what are these about? What what are they talking <laughs> about? Right. And why do they have these, yeah. these names of things? I don't, what language is that? What are these? Right. Cause that was me, you know, I'm like the Kotsu yeah. trilogy, the Koyanis Kotsu. Like, is this, where's right. this even from? Well, it's it's an American film, <laughs> documentary, yep. you know, uh, in, in, of sorts or experimental documentary, experimental film, um, and uh, Reggio got the the names for these from the Hopi language, uh, which is a, kind of a uh, you know southwestern Arizona um, uh, type uh, uh, people, you know, natives uh, to that that region. Um, and their language, and it's a language that there aren't very many people who still speak it by any means, and that's where he got this. And I'm assuming it's because part of his, you know, his own youth and his, his, um, uh, you know, he 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 spent time in New Mexico and and in that area. I'm assuming that in some way that led him to become familiar with. A lot of this it certainly seems to have sparked some of the the visuals from the start of uh, Koyanis Katsi uh, but you know that that's kind of where where these strange names come from 
And each of them, I think they're neologisms, you know, it's not like Koyanis Katsi is a word that they use in the Hopi language, but he's taking parts of parts of words uh, mm-hmm. to create Koyanis Katsi, Pawakatsi, and Nakoi Katsi. And uh, I, we'll, you know, we can get into it now, but we'll, we'll get into what each of those kind of means, which yeah. you, you really only know from the, 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 you know, it does say in the movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. What, it, what the subtitles. Mean. Right. Right. Uh-huh. Are, but yeah. uh, interesting and, stuff. And, and, yeah, and and the Hopi language is interesting. I mean, I I don't. I'm way over my skis probably to even start talking about it. But my understanding of the Hopi language is that it's a language that kind of exists out of time. It doesn't have like past, present, and future tenses. In fact, the language is always like sort of set in the moment or in the now, not really looking forward mm-hmm. or backward. And that and that that has apparently an effect on just one's interactions with life one's one sense of how the world functions and operates so again whether or not that is a, a key i mean reggio in different <laughs> places talks about the film as sort of taking us outside of time and and the fact that you can have these these sequences of images and sounds uh, re-experiencing at different times different places in your life and revisiting the, those moments but in a different context i don't know i'm again kind of babbling on a little bit of pseudo philosophical here but but there is something it's this is not just an arbitrary choice here or it's kind of cute to spell words with a q and a you know you know yeah. i don't know it's just it's uh there is a there's a concept behind this that i think is you know respect respectful uh of the language uh even though he wants to make it clear this is not about the hopi people mm-hmm. and he's not trying to present himself as kind of a, a commentator or an expert even though he does have hopi acquaintances friends who kind of helped with some of the, the the linguistic aspects of the film and and using these words to capture the essence of what each film is, is trying to express well he seems to be inviting us with a you know he, he he's not explicit on what these images mean to him or what he's trying to portray. He's not explicit as to what you just mentioned about the Hopi language. He just says here, here's what this means in the Hopi language. He's almost inviting us to dig and to think and to Mm -hmm. philosophize maybe, maybe from a, a place of relative uh, newbieism, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or even ignorance. But he he does seem to be inviting us to do the work here, and letting us you know guiding us, but letting us take our own path. I I don't think that he you know from what I've seen in his in the the stuff here in the supplements, he seems okay with people getting it wrong, even mm-hmm. because he's not. Well, I think he does have some pretty explicit and some pretty you know. You, you, how can you come across this and, and interpret it in many other ways? I think he's okay with us doing the the connecting of the dots, even if we if we get it, you know, quote unquote wrong. Um, and I'll do this this right now. I mean, the the last the twenty twenty two film we just talked about that neither of us know anything about <laughs> is called Once Within a Time. I mean, he's still playing mm-hmm. with that concept. So you have to be right. You're on to something where he's fascinated by maybe this aspect of the Hopi language about time and mm-hmm. our place within or without it or our experiencing of it. And it once you make that connection. There's so many ways to go with these movies, and yeah. uh, that 
again, we're, we're, he, he just pointed in a direction and we start walking. <laughs> we'll see where we end up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do you want to talk about Koyana Skatsi? Let's just talk about yeah. the first one, the, the, the one that kicked it all off. So Koyana Skatsi is life out of balance. That's the translation of the, of the term. And, um, especially when you get it in the context of the larger trilogy, you realize how much of this film is about uh, North America or even in the United States of America and it's, it's way of life mm-hmm. um, there. It's a contrast between uh, the, the, the primal power and beauty of nature. Uh, much of it filmed out in your neighborhood there, Trevor, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the mountainous West uh, monument Valley and, and uh, again, the, 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 the place where the Hopi um, originated and, and lived. Um, there's this mysterious uh, rock art, you know, these, these kind of ominous figures that are kind of shrouded <laughs> in black and, and, and then the music yeah. begins and you're just taken into this kind of wonderful world of nature with massive, you know, horizons and rock formations and just the, the grandeur of, of the natural world. Uh, these, you know, dried up old seabeds that uh, became incredible mountain ranges and peaks and the textures and topography still very awe-inspiring, uh, whether you go there as a visitor like myself or if you live not that far from it and kind of just, mm-hmm. you know, go out for a drive and see these wonderful Take it for spaces. granted. Really. Exactly right. Uh, but a movie he... like this can can make you realize what, what oh, yeah. you live amidst. It did that for me in 2012. We had just moved back here and I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. I need to get out there and and, <laughs> and become yeah. awe-inspired, you know, become, yeah. um, you know, suck it in because otherwise it's just the background. Yeah. Anyway. Just, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but then he, he very quickly contrasts that with uh, the, you know, the byproducts of industrial, you know, technologically advanced civilization, uh, freeways and commutes and, and pedestrians and architecture buildings, but also some of the more uh, destructive and and malevolent aspects, you know, uh, military weaponry and and spaceships and, uh, you know, explosions. I think there's some footage of uh, open air atomic bomb tests from uh, Mm -hmm. Nevada from back in the 50s, back when they still used to do that ridiculously insane thing you know just throwing all this radiation up into the atmosphere and letting the dust and the wind blow it where it will um you know so so it's both the the beauty of nature but also the threat that uh human advancement kind of represents to uh, to all of that and the effect that it has on the human beings that are just sort of going about our business. Like you said, Trevor, just sort of taking life for granted because mm-hmm. this is just the the system we live in, the economics, the you got to make the money, got to get the job, got to, you know, buy the gas for your cars and, and uh, drive over all of this uh, paved over, you know, natural, beautiful landscape so that we can, uh, you know, have our nice green lawns and, and sports arenas and all the other frivolities that, uh, that, that keep modern mm-hmm. life humming along. And, and that's the, really, oh, yeah, that's, that's the gist of it. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, and that make you so hyper-focused on not the now, I mean, being yeah. aware of now and you know, all that, that's really good. But I mean, the stresses of the now, 
you know, they have these these images of people going to work and walking back and forth and back and forth and back and forth from office to home to, you know, all these different things. And I'm like, wow, I have done that. And I've done I did that in New York for years. You know, I was one of those commuters walking. And how often was there that stress of the moment of what do I need to do right this second Mm-hmm. that I'm missing out on a lot and how much of that is meaningless to me now. Now I'm not saying it, it's meaningless then you have to deal with the, those stresses and things or else, you know, other thing, you know, there are consequences, but at the same time, those are not my memories. I can't think of a single commute to work that was based <laughs> on work yeah. stuff. I can remember somewhere I stopped to read a good book, you know, I remember mm-hmm. reading Anna Karenina on the train one day and, and just uh, almost missing my stop. I can remember, I actually remember um, when I got the, um, oh, what's that eclipse set uh, with the trains? I can't think of it right now. The 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 train um, uh, hobbyists and the, the oh, twins uh, with the, their own language. Jean-Pierre Gorin, yeah, right? The yeah, Gorin. yeah. That, that came out and I, I, um, I recorded it so that I could watch it uh, while I was commuting, I remember that kind of yeah, stuff yeah. that took me out of the, that time to something a little more expansive uh, rather than that busyness of the moment. And those are the things I remember. I have no, I mean, it isn't just a, I haven't repressed them. I just have no memories. Of Nothing registered. Other, right. Yeah, you were just in transit. Right. right. Yep. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, we talk, you talked about the awe inspiring nature there is a, a complication with this film that I love, and that is that some of these shots of those busy streets. I mean, there's that one of the intersection. In the background, we have buildings, and we oh, have yeah. cars mm-hmm. approaching from the background, and cars crossing in the front, and then a, tr- a plane cuts across the middle of the yeah. screen. <laughs> yeah. It is amazing. And mm-hmm. Philip Glass's music is frenetic, and and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, uh, you know, I I need to settle down <laughs> because it's just <laughs> pumping so much blood. It is yeah. also awe inspiring mm-hmm. that that is part of our world, that complicated mess that nevertheless these people are able to get from point A to point B and not even see all this stuff mm-hmm. with because of the the amazing filmography of. In particular, uh, Koyanis Katsi of these um, urban scapes. And, you know, there's just beautiful shots of buildings taking up the whole screen, but in their, their minor, uh, they're they're small in the individually, but taken together. I mean, again, I walked around New York city for years and I was often, you know, you know, Whoa, look at that building. Mm -hmm. But this film made it look different. It made it look like a, a futuristic alien crowded space that was amazing. Yeah. And then you have the abandoned buildings and the demolition of them. And it, it's still awe inspiring, even when you realize how um, much destruction, how much um, waste, uh, both in terms of garbage, but also here's a building that's now just being demolished. <laughs> it'll be, it'll be rubble and then it'll be gone. Um, yeah. entirely that whole thing that, but the photography, I'm like, are you, are you undercutting your own theme here by making this look so amazing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, these man-made yeah, yeah. landscapes. Right. The, the, the architectural, really the brilliance and the, and the craft and the visually dazzling 
you know, facades that they put together to make these cityscapes, especially at night when they're all lit up or, or the freeways uh, full of cars just buzzing along. And of course, then they, they speed everything up and you're just seeing like this, this river of, of light, this pulsing energy just coursing through these, you know, these urban canyons, you know, but is it, it, right. It's, it's the juxtaposition of all of these images, both the, you know, impressive beauty uh, and the triumph, if you will, of, of human technology and civilization of creating these, these you know, incredible cities where all kinds of fascinating things are happening. People are living their lives. The arts and culture are reaching new heights, you know, and, and, uh, human it's progress. It is, it's progress, right? It's, it's, and it's, and, you know, and all of the other scientific achievements that, that, you know, I mean, talked about spaceships, you know, uh, interplanetary exploration and, and understanding the, the, creative mysteries of the universe but in the right alongside that we have these these uh you know abandoned project housing the 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 pruitt uh, igo uh projects in st louis missouri that are part of this whole destruction uh it's it that's not just the you know the, the the impressive sight of buildings you know falling down suddenly within a few seconds into this huge cloud of dust it's also the death of this idea that society could somehow be planned and managed so that we could create affordable, you know, subsidized mm-hmm. housing. Because then, of course, you've also got the the uh, the, the background racism that that uh, sort of was the genesis of these urban projects because they had to figure out where to put all the poor dark skinned people, you know, um, so that the, the affluent could have mm-hmm. their suburban homes and we could have people who could work in the cities and do all the, you know, kind of lower tier jobs and, and that, but that's just not a humane or principled way of, of going about it, you know? And so, you know, the, the destruction of a building on screen triggers all these other ideas, all these other associations for what was going on there and why did this building, you know, collapse into a, uh, into a cloud of dust and debris, whereas these other buildings, you know, are, are shrines that are supposed apparently are supposedly going to be maintained forever, you know, or at least for centuries from now. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the idea. So mm-hmm. this is one of those movies where you can just sort of, you, it maybe you hit pause and let your mind wander for a little bit, or you're missing things that are coming up because some idea has sprung out at you <laughs> and kind of taken you on a little flight of fancy you know, down the tracks there until you come back. Maybe, maybe it's the music, maybe it's some other image. Uh, but again, that's that's where these films are so dense and so rewatchable, uh, but also very hard to digest and summarize. As they, well, here's the essence of Koyana Scotsi. Right. <laughs> It feels to me, I mean, one of the, the supplements that's an interview with Reggio and Glass is called Impact of Progress. And that mm-hmm. feels that feels like maybe for me, a great distillation of what I'm mm-hmm. getting, at least mm-hmm. at this point, is that progress is there. And, he, and I think you call it progress, you know, that this yep. is per progress and there's good things about it the impact is going to be there. And I think he's advocating for a much more thoughtful um, uh, pathway to progress mm-hmm. than, than, you know, look at the, there is a cost to progress. Are there ways that we can uh, do it more humane? As you kind of mentioned, are there ways that we can be aware of the trash? 
I mean, again, thinking of the awe-inspiring parts, there's the there's the rocket that uh, is launched, and when it separates, you know, yeah. we've seen that shot, and it's always like inspirational, and look at what we can do. Sure. But in the context of this film, what I see is all the garbage that gets uh, ejected <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if I've ever noticed that in another context where it's just like, oh, wow. But here, because of everything that's come before, I see the little bits and bobs and nuts and bolts and pieces that are just now out there. And that's yeah. a cost of that kind of progress, you know, that sometimes we're not paying attention to at all. And I think he's saying, pay attention. And I think this hits particularly at home when you start to, I, I don't know, for me, the end of this film, um, the, the people, as, as awe-inspiring as it's been the whole way through, when he starts focusing on them, and maybe this is just me interpreting it and it can be completely different for others, but they look haunted mm-hmm. and yeah. there's an aimlessness there that I'm like, right. okay, there's just like, there's a cost to my own progress of getting to work and, and talking on the phone that whole time and, you know, responding to emails and text messages and getting my job done. Da, 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 da. <laughs> there is a cost yeah. to that, even though it's, part of what we do is there a way to more thoughtfully address it so that it can you know mitigate that cost while still having the some of the benefits of the progress mm-hmm. and i i just i mean that's where my mind went this time around my first yeah. time watching it, it i was like oh that's that's nearby you know i can go see yeah. that oh look at that building that's beautiful oh the pr- progress is uh, you know i felt like it was more condemning of of human activity and progress and i think there is you know the the images of all the trash and you know as yeah. people wait in line and are eating their food it's like oh man we are we can be kind of disgusting right uh, yeah the, the, the but, hot dog manufacturing and they're just <laughs> spitting out the assembly line there or or the the masses at the various what subway stations or whatever yeah. uh, or or just crowding the streets and it's like I mean, I've lived in some big cities, but those are some really crowded I sidewalks. Felt like the same way. Was, was just like the end of the Fourth of July parade or something? Or <laughs> where, where, where did all these people come from? Yeah, you know, if, I, yeah. if I'm turning a corner and I see all those, I was like, I'm just going to keep walking the other direction. I just don't want to throw myself in the middle. But but again, that's the economy. That's that's the demands that you you just got to go there. And of course. This movie is a bit of a time capsule. This movie, I think, mm-hmm. was released in 83, but a lot of this was done in the late 70s, early 80s. It was a project that took years to compile. And you actually see some of the early rough cuts of, of yeah. Quan Escazzi. There's an incredible supplement with Allen Ginsberg <laughs> doing this kind of spoken word, free verse, uh, poetic kind of narration. And some of that same footage is used later on, especially towards the end of Clan Escazzi. But it's like with no you know, Allen Ginsberg, no voice really. No, no, than, no voice. But other uh, than again, broadcasting, <laughs> right? I, I had the old Clan Escazzi DVD. That Allen Ginsberg piece was not on it. You know, yeah. so but, but what a what a treasure because it's just a whole different angle on what maybe this film might have been if they'd have taken more of a. Not, I would never say Allen Ginsberg in a film is the traditional approach, but if they'd had a, <laughs> a spoken narration, right? Um, but but because you know you you see these scenes and there is this kind of you know gawking aspect of the fashions and the cars and the busyness and the hustle. But the fact is, you know, we are still caught up in that busyness and hustle, and yeah. we're gonna we're gonna look just as dorky and odd in our fashions 
a few decades from now as well. But, you know, again, that, that the technique that is used throughout all of these three films of, of zeroing in on faces of getting that square on look in the eye. Uh, and there's a story, there's a soul, there's a person, a history behind each of those faces. Mm -hmm. Some of them very intense, grim, maybe even intimidating. I'm thinking of like that, that, uh, air force pilot, you know, he's, uh, he's right in front of his, his, his jet there. And he's like, do not mess with me. And then there's, you know, just again, more ordinary, humble people, business people, uh, Vegas workers, uh, you know, children. I mean, just the, a whole spectrum of humanity. And, and that's a technique that Reggio likes to come back to throughout all of his movies. Because again, it's, it's one of those things of like, whoever you are as a viewer, how do you relate to that person? How do you judge or critique what they are representing, their their way of life, their materialism, their shallowness, or their their depth, the struggle that they've had to endure just to get to this moment? I mean, all of those things are kind of summoned up as you as you take in the film and even if you've seen those faces before and you're on your third or fourth or 10th or 15th rewatch like i am it still hits you in a, in a unique way and it, it has never lost its ability to 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 move me on this kind of you know fairly profound level you 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 mentioned there's a soul behind these faces mm-hmm. in a life mm-hmm. even though they're fairly still and just kind yeah. of gazing. And yeah. I feel that very much. And it's an interesting connection when you said that to a film that is other, that has some similarities, I think to Koyanis mm-hmm. Katsi. Mm-hmm. It, it's a uh, Chantal Ackerman's hotel, yeah. Monterey, sure. which has, yeah. you know, empty hallways and yet they feel filled with soul. Yes, yeah. and completely silent. There, there, yes. There's no music. It's just the atmosphere. But the way she holds the shots and lets the edit, mm. you know, really you immerse yourself into that. Yeah, yeah, really. And and news from home, another news film from that home. she made, oh, set yes. in New York City, that has it's got more of a an evocative uh, narration and and all of that. But again, some of the same type of environments shot not that far from. Uh, chronologically than, than a lot of these scenes mm-hmm. in New York city and Chicago and some of the other big metropolitan areas that are, you know, put on display here. And I think also, again, going back to my original experience of watching this film, you know, people had never seen this type of thing before, you know, those slow pans around the city with the freeways and, and, and everything sped yeah. up so that you're really kind of catching kind of a hyper accelerated pace of life and, and all the activity and all the stuff that's happening 24 seven in these, in these huge metropolitan, you know, uh, assemblages of, of, of buildings and vehicles and people and, and all the things that are going on there. It just sort of, delivers to you this realization that all of this stuff is happening all around us. I mean, we've got our own little <laughs> lives and we're such a, such a, you know, micro piece of the bigger story. And this is a film that just sort of gets you to think about things on that larger scale and figure out, well, what is my place in all of this? And what is this, where is this all going? What's it all about anyway? You know? And there is a brilliance to it. You know, you mentioned that this was all pretty new. People hadn't seen something like this before. And I agree a hundred percent. I think this is still unique for some reasons, but at the same time, I like to get on YouTube sometimes on oh, my yeah. big, yeah. my TV that's 4k 
and yeah. search for 4K videos. And some of those yeah. are just beautiful drone sure. footage of yeah. rivers yeah. and mountains. Train rides through train a rides. beautiful landscapes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And yet I still feel like this is the, the Koyanis Katsi is unique because of the, there are connections. He is putting yeah. things together in a way that is, is different than just sheer beauty. There's a philosophy behind it that I don't mm-hmm. mean, you know, I don't, I don't sense in those YouTube videos. I really put them on just cause I think they're beautiful to watch while I'm doing something yeah. else. Yeah. This I, I actually do put on Koyanis Katsi to watch sometime just to have on the background because it does similar things, but I always end up sitting there and thinking about it afterwards. Yeah. 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 It you goes know? beyond wallpaper. Yeah. Although mm-hmm. it functions very nicely or even just as an ambient soundtrack, because again, the yeah. music just has that kind of lulling <laughs> quality to it. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, it's not music. It's not just something that you right. put, listen to in the elevator. It's um, hard to it's go to not... sleep when someone's chanting Koyanis Katsi at you. You start, you start to think on a more uh, cosmic right. level. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know how much time we want to dedicate to each film, but we probably yeah, might want to, to summarize to the, here. To, well, I mean, I move it, on to the next one. It, it, I well, mean, we can summarize this, but I'm thinking yeah. these also function so well as a trilogy. I don't think we're done with right. Koyanis Katsi, but <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think the the final scene there, the, the of the, the, the that is just such a gut punch, you know. Uh, you, you talked about the the rocket going up in the air, the separation, and and everything's really majestic. Every technology is taking us to the pinnacle until all of a sudden the whole thing blows up, and now it's just nothing but you know toxic, molten hot you know metal falling from the sky. But the the tracking yeah. of that last piece there that little bit that's just kind of twirling around uh after all of the hyper motion all the sped up now it's slowed down and you're seeing this little remnant this artifact of this destructive you know failure to launch uh tumbling to the earth with that music that's you know that at such a pitched crescendo and and all that you know just going on and on and on and then all of a sudden everything just kind of slows to a crawl and brings us right back to homing. And it's like really, I don't know, to me, it's just, it's still stunning. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just kind of mentally reliving or imagining that. And it's just, I think it's just the way that this whole film flows from this, you know, very tranquil, grand beginning, builds to a fever pitch everything's popping and exploding and and moving around and and we're all caught up in the swirl and the dynamics of it and then it just brings it right back down i mean it really is like i think i used the word symphony earlier that's what it feels like it's like everything is meticulously composed brings us back to baseline we catch our breath and say wow we've just had an experience here <laughs> and yeah. i think that yeah that's why i think koyana scotsi is like the classic of the trilogy that I'm, I'm really thankful we have the other two, but that's the one that I think stands the most on its own. It's, it's the breakthrough. It's the beginning. And I think it's the most perfectly realized of, of the three films. I think the other two are, are excellent, wonderful. I love them. Um, Koyana Scotsi seems to me almost beyond criticism. I mean, if it's not your thing, you don't like it, then that's how it is. But I, I really feel like it's just brilliantly, conceived and they had all the time and they put it together and it's magnificent 
Mm-hmm. Um, the other two, I think, you know, there are there are rooms to find maybe criticism or say, well, it could have been done this or that, or maybe it went on a little bit too long or, or whatever. But I, I feel like Koyana Scotsy, that's why it's in my personal top 10, not just because of my affection for it, because I really feel it's like a really unique and almost inimitable type of film that establishes kind of one of those outposts of what cinema is capable of. And that's why I like yeah. to be its champion out there like that. No, that sounds good. I'll I'll be a little bit uh, hyperbolic here. Yeah, uh, you know, fitting <laughs> fitting for the the network that we're on, I guess. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, the uh, if only Koyanis Katsi existed, I'd be just fine. I mean, mm-hmm. I I do I do like Pawakatsi and Nakoi Katsi, and they certainly inform my uh, experience with Koyanis Katsi at this point. But if they ceased to exist, I don't think I would mourn them um, where, and again, I, I'm not yeah. trying to dismiss them. I'm just saying relative to Koyanis Katsi that I would want to go to battle for, yeah. um, you know, the other two are, are supplements or expansions yeah. mm-hmm. on some things that are, that have some success for sure. Um, but don't have that power to absolutely captivate me and send me into a days long uh, meditative state myself, where even though I'm doing other things, I am thinking about these issues. Right. Um, these other two films uh, just don't have that power over me. And I do think that it's because of some of the, that it's just not up to the same uh, creative and um, cinematic power of the first film. Mm-hmm. Uh and I'm sure some of it might just be me, you know, but, but, but at any rate, I, I, I am with you. And again, speaking hyperbolically about all, or about those uh, to make that point, I'm still excited to talk about those two films with oh, you. For but sure. I, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, if folks are like, and maybe even some people walked in and Nakoi Katsi was what was playing on the TV and you thought, well, these are not for me. No, no, Nakoikatsi is very different in terms oh, of yeah, its visual yeah. um, power to engage you <laughs> yep. than uh, either of the other two first off, but in particular Koyanis Katsi. It's just, it is a marvel. Um, I'm already excited to rewatch it. Uh, I, I, on, and I guess to make a confession, I've seen it several times. I've seen the other two twice. My first okay. time in 2012 and my yep. second time in preparing for this episode. <laughs> sure. Okay. And, and that may be, that may be how it goes from here on out. But, uh, you know, as often is the case, um, I, I get more excited as we, as I, as I, Koyanis Katsi alone made me stop and think about it. Yeah. Sometimes podcasting about a film with you makes me appreciate it a lot more because I've stopped to think about it and realized how much I missed or how much I just was, you know, willing to kind of move through something that, that deserved my more full attention. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, anyway, just a little bit on that transition. <laughs> sure. Okay. So, yeah, so Paul Katzi is, uh, you know, well, Reggio himself says that, you know, Koyana Scotsi is looking at life in the United States, North America, from that kind of that Western perspective. 
Pawakatsi uh, takes us to, to, into the global south, uh, sometimes literally below the equator, uh, but other times, you know, in places like uh, India, Hong Kong, that are, you know, technically north of the equator, but still part of that developing world, you might say. Um, or, the, the, you know, the, the darker skinned people of the world, the, the indigenous cultures, uh, the, the, you know, the, the developing or third world economies, uh, the, the places where so many of the resources that we rely on in our technologically advanced uh, north or western world, uh, those resources come from places like Africa, like South America, uh, you know, uh, Southern Asia, and, and, and the people power as well to, to do a lot of the, the technical work or the, you know, the refinement and the production. Uh, it, it comes at the, the cost not only to the individuals who are oftentimes doing the lowest of the of the grunt work, the, the labor, but also their their cultures, their way of life get subsumed by, you know, uh, colonial or neo-colonial uh, expansions that say, well, you know what, you've got some pretty nice uh, minerals here or oil or gold or whatever the case may be. And we've got these powerful corporations and bulldozers and, and uh, we've got our political cronies uh, among the native population that are willing to do business with us. And so this is how it's going to be. And so the next thing you know, you're a you're a strapping young Brazilian man who's working in the bottom of a gold mine, lugging 75 pound bags of sand on your back up slippery slopes, walking that through muddy, the, the yeah, muddy. Yeah. Yeah. You've basically got shorts, you know, cheap tennis shoes, a shirt on and beautifully filmed, beautifully filmed, exquisitely <laughs> powerful. Uh, and, and this is the opening scene of Pawakatsi. Uh, and you, your job is to take that bag of dirt, lug it all the way up to the top. You're, you're going to do kind of a, a half spiral spiral around this pit that's probably six or seven stories deep into the ground. You're going to get up there. You're going to dump that bag of dirt into the hopper, and you're going to go back down and do it all over again. How many times a day? I can only imagine. But that's their job. And what do they get paid for that? Who knows? So do they make it out of the day alive? Well, maybe one guy didn't. We see one of the uh, workers who's passed out perhaps due to exhaustion maybe there was an injury a fall who knows what but it's a it's a very moving scene it, and just I actually being, thought it are, was a death yeah it could be it could have been yeah i mean he wasn't moving you know he mm-hmm. was he was out of it and he's literally being hoisted on the back of of one guy and another guy's got his legs over his shoulder and they're just picking up their fallen brother to see if they can get him some help. And this mm-hmm. isn't just like, you know, five, 10, 20 guys. This is hundreds of men who well, are basically sentenced to doing this. It's, it's crazy. Go ahead. Yeah. Potentially a hundred thousand. Yeah. Men yeah. Working at this mine. This is the Serra Seja Pelada mine. Um, it's in Brazil and it was, I, I lived in Pará, Brazil for, for some time. Mm. Um, and this is in Pará. I didn't ever go to it. Uh, but I heard about it even back then. It's a fairly recent discovery, especially in relation to, uh, the film. It was just in, um, I think 1979 that it was, that it was found, but yeah, massive, you know, just large deposits of gold made it just a place where people flocked to 
And then some of them were, you know, hoping to strike it rich. And as we can see in the film, for the most part, there's just a lot of toil and labor that, again, potentially um, hundreds of thousands uh, of people. Yeah. I mean, you get the sense that these guys are not entitled to any gold that they may find. Right. They're just given daily, <laughs> they're given day laborers rates and, you know, and probably given other options that might have been one of the more lucrative careers that a, a, a healthy young man could, could uh, land, but at what price, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and again, that's, that's just the opening scene, but that, that really does sort of set the stage for almost everything else that follows, which is again, largely a look at life in the developing world. And uh, there's the different experiences and scenarios that, that these folks go through. So I, I imagine, you know, context might have something to do with it. If, if, we, if we were, you know, uh, Peruvian or South Asian or, or African men talking about these films, maybe we would have a different experience or a different take. Maybe, maybe this would be the film that spoke to us because it reflected more of our life, our tradition, our culture. Uh, whereas Koyana Scotsi is definitely, it's an American movie yeah. talking about what Good it's point. like to be an American and what it means, you know. So go, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was saying that's a good point. Yeah, it's definitely something to think about. Um, I do know this one seems to have gotten quite a bit of criticism f- for, and I, th- I think this is maybe potentially wrong, uh, but I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on it. But got criticism for being kind of a, a peon, a he- heroic um, evocation of the, the glory of labor. Yeah, that's what okay. I tended to read uh, about it so often, huh. and and yet I'm, you know, as you and I just were talking, it's like look at what we make laborers do. Look at what. Yeah, I, to I, me, I see exploitation. Uh-huh. I don't, I don't see. I mean, yeah, you maybe have some admiration or some empathy for the, you know, the investment of their life force into this work, but you, I, I, I cannot help but think, but so much of this done is done under you know, coercion of a certain mm-hmm. sort, maybe not like a government sentenced you to work in the gold mine, but you know, you just have so little options. You can't just be a, a, a native person growing crops and living a self-sustaining life or, or, you know, participating in the economy of your local village. No, no. Yeah. The, That's the, yeah. exactly right. These people are not laboring to, for their community. Right, um, they are laboring. Her wealth is going elsewhere. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. They're 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 given subsistence wages. I mean, the the corporations want their workers to survive, or at least live long enough during so, productive labor years. So you with know. this, you kind of wonder if they care yeah, well, that yeah, much. Yeah. You know, these do well, seem right. expendable given the the sheer number of uh, laborers they have. Very um, much so. Yeah, but I I was surprised by that, and it, but this time when I watched it, I thought, it, it, you know. I'm uh, again. I'm wanting to say something so that we can discuss it, not because I actually want it to sound this way. But do we blame Philip Glass? His music in this film with oh, the anthem yeah. makes some of these slow motion shots of people working feel like an Olympic film. Yeah, <laughs> and and I wonder if that got mis- <sighs> is if there's a potential for miscommunication of that because I really don't feel like this is a film that is glorifying labor as it in as a as a conservative value of oh woe yeah. is us we should be back to um to this kind of stuff rather than the the commotion that we saw in Koyaniskatsi 
Um, these, you know, that that was soul sucking. This is, mm-hmm. you know, physically demanding. But look, and I'm like, no, that's not that's not what this. And I I was surprised at how many, re, um, you know, reviews and such that I read seemed to have thought it was a glorification. I wonder if it's because that anthem that plays over and yeah. over and over yeah. again in the film isn't subversive, but is actually just being mis. I think it should be subversive. Um, I think it is subversive, but I think it was uh, misunderstood and, and maybe, maybe yeah. for good reason, you know? Well, this was a time in the late 1980s. If you think about, you know, Paul Simon's Graceland album was a pretty popular hit. Peter Gabriel was bringing in world music. There was a, there was kind of this openness, uh, you know, David Byrne, Brian Eno, they were mm-hmm. using like, you know, African and third world rhythms. And, and so this world music thing was, was kind of a, a, a phenomenon, you know, we could, we could bring in some musical textures from parts of the world that had not really influenced like pop music, like the, how Indian music and Ravi Shankar and the sitar kind of came into the sixties through the Beatles. And, and there was this little fad of Indian you know, based music uh, in, in the mid to late 1960s. Well, something similar like that was happening with, with uh, kind of more percussive world beat and stuff like that in the 1980s, which was right when this film came out. And I wonder if, this film kind of got lumped into that because, you know, hmm. um, that was part of like Graceland. He used a lot of musicians uh, from South Africa who had been um, kind of hard pressed under the apartheid regime. And there was kind of a political and uh, cultural aspect to that of kind of opposing apartheid, which was still the rule, the law of the land. Mandela, Nelson Mandela was in prison at that time. And so there was a kind of a romanticization and, and, and a way of propping uh, exotic, you know, developing world elements into, into culture by certain, in particular white, you know, uh, uh, white artistic creators, maybe some talk even of appropriation of a certain sort. But I, I think you raise a good point. I think that that music is so inspiring and ennobling and uplifting that, yeah, you can sort of draw those conclusions where I, I really do feel like the the editorial <laughs> tangent of Pawakatsi yeah. is like, these people deserve a fairer shake. They, they deserve a, a bigger share of the net proceeds because of the cost that, the Western way of life is inflicting upon them. And that's the, the, the title is uh, Pawaka is as Reggio explains in one of the supplements is kind of like a Hopi sorcerer or a black magician, not black race, but, but somebody who practices the dark arts and uses their power to suck the life force out of others to pursue their own agenda. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's basically the parasitic. message is that yeah, parasitic, right? We are draining the uh, the developing world, the global South, of its vitality, of its resources, of its wealth, even of its life to a certain extent, so that we can light up our neon and and have our gadgets and and proceed into this sci-fi future that uh, our visionaries have in mind for us, you know. And so there are in, interspersed with all of this footage of of um, you know the the global South and all of that there are still elements where you're getting back into, you know, late 20th century life with digital imagery, with advertising and video images and 
uh, popular cultural figures of the late 1980s, you know, Pope John Paul and Reagan and and uh, Tom Brokaw. There's a there's a whole montage of sort of famous familiar faces. That's another fascinating time capsule aspect of this film, which again is a, a late 80s piece. So if you live through those years or even just want to get a sense of what life was like in different parts of the world, th this movie kind of shows you a little bit of what was going on. Um, but, yeah, the, but this is also a world pre-9-11. Uh, the Ar Iranian revolution had taken place. There's not really anything set. I mean, I, I think there are some shots that were done in Israel, but there really isn't a whole lot of straight up middle eastern which is i guess egypt is probably about as close as it gets to to that part of the world so but yeah definitely some interesting cultural commentary but you see a lot of people living in very squalid conditions you know we've had talked about the housing projects in koyanaskazi here we've got you know trash dumps and basically you know people you know, milling through the piles, massive mountains of refuse, finding any salvageable little thing because the poverty is just so much, you know? Uh, you know, trains that are teeming with people hanging out the windows or sitting on the roof, you know, and, and of course the iconic image of this film is this young boy who's mm -hmm. walking down the road in his robe. It's uh, a theatrical old, poster. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well. Yeah. Yeah. The big truck coming down, belching all kinds of uh, exhaust and kicking up dust. And the boy is kind of submerged under this cloud of, of fumes and dust and, you know, who knows what kind of nastiness he's, uh, you know, taking into his body just through breathing and contact with his skin. But towards the end of the film, that same kid emerges out of that cloud and it's like, well, he's going to survive. He's going to find his way. And again, maybe there is a little bit of a romantic gloss that's put on uh, these noble, you know, poor people uh, who are out there. Um, and, and we wash it down with a nice dose of liberal guilt <laughs> at the comfort of our lives as, as we see the, the, what others are, are kind of paying and contributing so that it's, we can enjoy our ease and comfort. It's a complicating film for that, and it's still pr for very sure. relevant. Um, yep. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think, so here I'm looking at uh, uh, a snippet from uh, Roger Ebert. There are okay. images of astonishing beauty in Godfrey Reggio's Pawakatsi, sequences when we marvel at the sights of the earth, and yet when the film is over, there is the feeling that we are still waiting for it to begin. I kind of get that. This one has a little mm -hmm. bit less momentum and, yeah. and and such, but but then he says, if Reggio seemed to think that man himself is some kind of virus infecting the planet, that we would enjoy earth more, in other words, if we weren't here. And I, you know, I think Ebert often has really insightful things to say. But again, in this one, I'm just like, I, I think he's saying we have to be aware and thoughtful. I don't mm -hmm. feel like he's deliberately romanticizing the labor, um, which again, others talk about a hippie. Uh, uh, I don't know if they use the word romanticizing, yeah. but uh, celebrate, yeah. you know, the dignity of labor. Um, and I don't think that's, I think that's too reductive. I think they missed some of the, some of the, the point. And, but again, at the same time, sometimes I look at this and I go, I don't know how to stop this, this particular problem. Yeah. You know what we, this is a big machine, you know, there's a hundred thousand workers in that mine. Yeah. I, how do you, how do you stop an enterprise that can, can do that? 
it's powerful. Um, it, the, these, you know, the, while it does talk about the parasitic um, way of life with uh, Pawakatsi, the way that the film was kind of put, it, the translation is also um, on the, the image, you know, the, the poster and such is life in transformation, mm-hmm. which I think is saying, hey, we're, again, here's the cost of, of progress or the impact of progress. It isn't, you know, that, that supplement doesn't call it a cost, but the impact of progress how do you how do you reconcile all of this and i don't think i can um i don't i don't think there's any movie that can somehow stop the train in its tracks you know but it's trying to you know at least connect various dots you know the, the power of of religion of indigenous cultures of economics of colonial and post colonial governing structures um you know, there is still, I mean, you know, many people in in these developing nations do aspire to the kind of material advances and comforts and stability that Western societies, you know, often do take for granted, you know, medical care and, and transportation and education for our kids and a pleasant environment to go out and do fun things in life, you know, to meet and congregate and to see new things and have enjoyable experiences. Um, you know, and, and obviously you, you can do a lot of that in, you know, whatever part of the world you live in, but there are some portions of the planet where the odds are much more stacked against the common people or the duration of their lives is shorter or the obstacles that they have to work through just to sort of get that breath of fresh air uh, or to, to feed and, and teach and raise their children are much more challenging than even some of our, you know, more economically hard-pressed communities here in the USA or in, in Europe or wherever. So I, I feel like, you know, again, maybe I'm, I'm biased in favor of Reggio because I feel like this is a guy whose heart is in the right place uh, and Philip Glass as well. They, they are trying to make a constructive statement, even though it maybe has troubling uh, and upsetting aspects to it. I don't think they are, they're certainly, I, I don't think you can say they are patronizing these people or seeking to exploit them for some kind of street credibility or, or hipster appeal or anything <laughs> like that. I think, you know. Uh, Unless they Reggio's, made the kid walk down the road. Yeah, and, yeah. Can and, we and, can we do that again? Okay, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that cloud didn't quite you know, dump enough dust on you. you know? uh, the cynics take there. Yeah, um, <laughs> sorry, but, sorry. But, but, no, that's okay. <laughs> I think it's, it is funny. I mean, just you know, the the um, Reggio's background as a person who I think was drawn into ministry life. Um, as a young man for, for sincere intentions. I mean, he wanted to serve humanity. Uh, one of his formative experiences that got him working, looking into making film was screening Los Olvidados uh, to the mm-hmm. community in, in Santa Fe, where he would work with you know poor young men who were kind of aimless and drifting in life and tried to divert them from some of the you know riskier 
things that they could have gotten into and Los Olvidados by Luis Benuel, uh, who we covered some of his later films a few episodes yeah. back, was was really pivotal. Uh, Reggio had not seen a lot of other films, but he did see that one. And that's where he thought, got his own idea. Like, I want to make a movie that will present some of these ideas to people who view it that, uh, you know, can maybe uplift humanity to some, some extent, but you can't uplift them in some sappy saccharine way. You've got to confront and deal with the realities of life that's being lived now and experienced by, you know, countless millions of people in different parts of the world and say, okay, well, we want to make the world a better place. Here's what we're dealing with. (laughs) Here's the scope of the challenge. And I think that's what they're trying to capture in this film. But yeah, Mm -hmm. because it does have a little bit more of that, um, focus on this particular aspect of you know the world's situation you know it, it and the and the shock of the new the surprising element isn't quite there koyana scotsi i just feel like it's so many brilliant pieces um this here kind of narrows this the um the, the it narrows the approach to focus on a particular parts of the world i think it captures some really amazing scenes and beautiful and and tragic moments but uh you know you you can already tell that there's a formula that's that's been established that they're following here and so it doesn't have the same novelty to it and that maybe is one more reason why it doesn't register with the same kind of deep impact that the that the first film did and if you're good, maybe this is a good time to yep. kind of slip into Nakoi Katsi. That's um, fine, yeah. Because yeah. It, I was just going to, th- I'm, I'm thinking about this. I, I feel like, you know, he, he is, he does have ideas. He does want to, oh, yeah. to get people to stop and think. But I, again, I feel like that is his goal here. He doesn't have voiceover. He has information, you know, provided visually and, um, uh, with uh, audio that yes, you know, there's, there's rhetorical power in all of that. But I do think that maybe he says, look, I don't know all the answers either. I'm not trying to be super didactic here. I'm trying to present this collage of, of things so that people stop and think just a little bit more about what is going on. And, um, you know, with, but, but maybe with Nakoi Katsi, it gets a little bit more, now here listen up <laughs> i mean this yeah, one yeah it's definitely yeah. more heavy-handed it is didactic in some places and you know <laughs> the results are mixed i again i feel like it's like it's a pretty interesting finale to the trilogy mm-hmm. it's a piece that they worked on for quite a few years and came close to not being made um again i'll just say it's a fascinating time capsule of post 9-11 America and and global culture at that at that moment and and film and digital cinema and virtual Mm -hmm. cinema Mm -hmm. it's it's not as powerful to me visually as either of the other two because it does rely a lot on stock footage or things that you know archival uh, footage that they have messed with digitally and it's it's hard. And they for meant this to, to do have, that. That's the yeah, thing. <laughs> he, yeah. he makes the case that this was their intention all along. You know. So it looks yeah. it looks bad. <laughs> it looks dated. It looks like something made in two thousand two. And part of the reason it's a problem is that I can get on my phone 
and do these same things with <laughs> images now, you know, like yes, blur yes. them or make them colored in weird ways. And so it's much, it, there's, it doesn't have quite that ca- captivating, compelling. It's intellectually interesting without yes. being able to, I, I have a hard time sitting down and, and uh, just eating up these images. I love the music in this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the music is really good. Uh, Yo-Yo Ma, a cellist, mm-hmm. famous, uh, you know, solo the classical performer and he's very prominent in the soundtrack he and philip glass collaborated apparently he was a late addition to the project but i think really sets it apart and i think elevates the whole experience of the film quite a bit because of his involvement um but you're you're right this is this is a very mixed bag in terms of its aesthetic (laughs) appeal the you know and it was, I mean, I, again, I, I, I recall seeing it in the theater and I was, I was pretty impressed. I thought, well, this is different than the first two, it is that. <laughs> but, but, but I also was, was glad that it was, that it uh-huh. wasn't just, you know, Koyana Scotsy three, you know, or something like <laughs> that, because, you know, we'd already seen you know, sped up and slow-mo and, yeah. and, and architecture as kind of this abstract pattern and freeway shots and mass production. And there's a lot of documentaries that have been produced in the decades since that really paid tribute to Koyana Skatsi in different ways, you know, um, whether That's it's good talking point. about, yeah, industrial pollution, toxic landscapes, waste, you know, uh, uh, landfills, things of that sort, or just the, the, the brutal exploitation of the planet earth and its effect on wildlife. Uh, Ron Fricke, who was the cinematographer on Koyana Scotsy, he went off and kind of did his own thing with a few films, Kronos, uh, Baraka and Samsara. Uh, I also own those on, on Blu-ray and they're incredibly gorgeous, but he's definitely more on the line of like spiritual, uh, you know, framing of, of narratives and, and uh, the esoteric traditions of the world. And, and so he's really much more on that kind of cosmic, almost mystical plane there of what he's trying to do with his films. Uh, Reggio, I think it really is trying to stay engaged with technologically advanced society and all of the sort of other components of global culture that have to be drawn from to, to feed this this monster this uh, this propulsive engine that's kind of fueling us along and i think his decision to use all of these treated images and digital technology uh, the internet and the global communications networks that again are just so much a part of our everyday life he's trying to draw our attention to all that artificial gloss and all of that engineering uh that you know just fills our days to the point where we don't even think about it anymore. So I think there is a, a, a self-conscious purpose for that, but it does have that kind of cheesy uh, limiting effect of, like you said, I can do that on my phone or what maybe was a kind of a novel presentation in 2002 is pretty hackneyed by now because computer graphics and video treatments have gone far beyond the limitations that were still in place on the medium at that time. And that's, that's probably part of the reason that when we were talking about Koyanis Katsi, that I brought up that, Hey, I can go on YouTube and see beautifully, you know, uh, uh, shot pictures of cities and landscapes. Mm -hmm. 
but this film has more to it. With this one, yes, oh, yeah. there's more to the film, but a the the images get tired yeah. pretty fast and don't have that same ability to captivate and pull me in intellectually with the the, the images. Um, yeah. It's it's much more more digital, or, and yeah. and po- possibly some of it is a personal aversion because we grew up in that time too, and we sure. see the yeah. progress that's been made since, and so there's a part of it that's like this isn't this isn't just dated; it's also embarrassing. We thought this looked good and was was <laughs> interesting and new, and look at yeah. how bad it looked. You know, there may be a little bit of that. I don't know. Well, uh, and I think point. you know. Some of the images that have stuck with me from my very first viewing are some of the moments that I don't think work so well, like the the, the wax figures, you know, that, yeah. that whole lineup starting with Yasser Arafat <laughs> and ending with George W. Bush, you know, and you've got, and it's, it's one guy after another. It's Yasser Arafat, Nelson Mandela, uh, I think Martin Luther King is in there, Billy Graham, uh, Trump makes an appearance. <laughs> uh, Ted Turner and Donald Trump are in that gallery there. Of course, this is when Donald Trump was just, at, and they're in the same room together. These are Madame Tussauds wax figures. Mm-hmm. These are these are uh, life size replicas of these famous personalities. And so, Ted Turner, of course, was the the founder of CNN and a big media mogul. And Trump, I think, was lumped into that same category, just kind of a public personality. And so, there's that one sort of minor prophetic moment i guess you might say is that trump (laughs) became a much bigger deal in the decade since but other than that it is very much a rip from the headlines and george w bush you know who was a big deal back in the day i I get that but he almost seems like a footnote by nowadays i don't know that's maybe well this is 2002 so this is 2002 uh, right during his presidency but also pre This is po- very, very post nine uh, eleven, right? And and, and I, I think pre Iraq War, Iraq. right? Right, and so he was a monumental figure in world history at that moment, or in wor- world culture. Um, but you know, but you're right. I I I do admire how these films function as time capsules. But this one is like so specific in the moment <laughs> that it really does sort of take you out of it for a while. And and then yeah, and then there's other pieces that are you know like the very beginning is that shot that zoom in on Bruegel's uh, Tower of mm-hmm. Babel, and then it cuts from that window shot digitized. To- Digitized, digitized, though. digitized <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, and then it goes into what we, you know, uh, we call ruin porn here in Michigan, which is and maybe they call it that <laughs> other places too, but but it's particularly because it's the Detroit. It's like a big railway station that's been abandoned, and yeah. here in West Michigan, where I live, there's been this kind of rivalry with the southeast part of the state because we're kind of the other dynamic the, of, of the power poles, and so there's a lot of detroit bashing that goes on over here and photograph photographic exhibits of detroit abandoned buildings that are falling into ruin is like a whole genre unto itself you know like (laughs) we have like local art competitions and exhibits and stuff you'd be amazed at how many people think their expression of art is to you know kind of maneuver their way into an abandoned factory or theater or school or whatever in Detroit. Cause there's, there's a lot of ruined buildings out that way. And some of them have a lot of interesting architectural details. So when I, when I first saw that, I was like, I just sort of laughed. I was like, oh boy, deep Detroit bashing right off the bat, you know? <laughs> but anyways, that, that's a little, little bit of a micro story for myself. And even the fact that the film starts and ends with 
that um, Starfield screensaver. I mean, come on. <laughs> right. I, you know, that, I'm like, Windows I'm back in, 95, right? <laughs> I'm walking around the uh, old department store and seeing that all over the place again exactly. <laughs> back in the late yeah. 90s. But I, so those know, are the easy knocks, you know, yeah, you can definitely have your fun with it. If you want to, you know, if you want to take Reggio and glass down a peg, especially Reggio, <laughs> yeah, he, right. he kind of opens the door for you to do that. The, this one is much more uh, on the note. I mean, I've got it yeah, pulled up on, on the my, nose. On my go, screen. Yeah. Here's not quite Kotze. Um, each other is uh, the na and Koi is kill many. And then Kotze is life. And so he has the definitions. One, a life of killing each other. Two, war as a way of life. And then three, interpretation, civilized violence. And we do get all these images of digitized fashion fairs and crash test dummies, which, which I, again, the, the the poster here is of a crash test dummy. America is test driving the future. It's just a little bit more. Well, if you look at it, the the crash test dummy has a suit on. It looks like he's wearing George Bush's blazer there. It's, it, I wish I had seen it at that time. Yeah. Because it's it w- very different, you know, a decade and then 20 years later um, to, I, I don't see all quite as much of the politics when I just watch the film, but yeah. I, you know, I know from the supplements and such that this was, this was maybe even spurred to f- uh, be finalized because of 9-11. You know, there was, yeah. there was an important moment that this was, this was, in the works, but ultimately became a response to. Mm-hmm. And I think the film suffers because of that, not because it's simplistic or anything like that, but because it takes away some of the expansiveness of the other films. And the film was originally meant to be part of those other films a little bit more and not its yeah. own time capsule of a particular, you know, important and still long reaching um, event. But, mm-hmm. um, but some of the characters, some of the uh, the thoughts and the the stuff, I, I don't know. It just it loses a little bit of its oomph because of because of that. And yeah, it yeah, looks I'm, like George Bush, uh, you know, in in a way on the cover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dummy. very much so. <laughs> so so yeah, so there's a there's a political urgency of the moment that they're appealing to. There's a long stretch which is kind of like, oh yeah, Tokyo Olympia did all of that stuff, you yes. know, all of the all the <laughs> athletics and the slow motion and the multiple exposures. So so yeah, and there are some things that do feel actually a little bit derivative and and why do why where is, does track and field competition fit into all of this you know i mean yeah you've got the power of bodies in motion but you know how is that you know life as war is it just the competitive aspects to it uh, you know the racing and the striving well i mean i i don't think you can fault or or, or use that as evidence to say you know life is out of balance we've got to get back on track well you know people running athletics and and perfecting their their skills and maximizing the potential of the human body and that that, that to me that seems pretty indisputably honorable and, and good thing to do maybe the, maybe there's a commentary on the commercialization or or the fetish that we have for paying athletes all the big money but you know they've, they've got fencing they've got gymnastics those are not people getting rich they're not being made into you know uh, posters on your teenage kids 
bedroom wall type of idols, you know? So yeah, so there are, there, there are some questionable choices or, or things that just don't seem to make a lot of sense other than just the aesthetics of it all. And the fact that they're just putting these images together and digitalizing the treatment and, and, you know, stretch and even stretching things out. Like I, I was wondering if, if my TV was showing at the right aspect ratio, I saw that the aspect ratio for this is just a little bit, I think it's narrower. Like I think Koyaanisqatsi and Paukatsi are one eight five, and this is one seven nine. But I think in one of the supplements, Reggio talks about they intentionally distorted and stretched mm-hmm. the images. So because like in the wax figure gallery I was talking about earlier, the faces all seem really fat, you know, like really stretched out on the wider scale. And so I was even messing with my TV settings until I saw, <laughs> well, I guess that was supposed to be that way, you know? And I, I don't remember that from my theatrical viewings, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, as you say, that's interesting because I'm not having seen it in the theater or having a prior experience with it. It never crossed my mind. It might be my TV. I just it was like, <laughs> oh, here they go screwing around with this yep, now and distorting yep, it. Like yep. they've distorted so many other things in, in this particular mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Um, well, anyway, I, I mean, I, I feel like it didn't have quite as much to say about the final film. But again, to mm-hmm. circle back, I think that's because Koyanis Katsi, again, it's still the one I want to talk about the most. And these yeah, other ones, sure. yeah. they do give lenses into it, but it still stands to me alone and kind of on a pinnacle. And these other ones are like, um, you know, just they, they point in the direction of the the magnificence and the provocativeness uh, of Koyanis Katsi. I'd like to end with that positive note. Yeah, because it it is a great journey though through all of these films. I mean, a couple of decades, a little more than a couple of decades in the making um, to get this trilogy all finally put together, and and here we have it, and it's it's fantastic. Yeah, there's some interesting names. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola was the presenter of Koyanis Katsi. For Pawakatsi, Coppola, and George Lucas got together. Mm-hmm. George Lucas kind of put up some of the funding. Of course, by that time, he was yeah. you know, <laughs> super rich and influential. And then Steven Soderbergh was kind of like the the rescue angel that came through to get Nakoikatsi over the finish line, where <laughs> uh, Coppola and Lucas had moved on to other things. And a champion and, of digital cinema, too. You know? the, I mean, well, it, exactly. It's I mean, an influence, and, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Soderbergh was, yeah, he, that's when he was doing traffic right around this time with all of the different color palettes in that film. Mm-hmm. And it's a Miramax film, so it's kind of from that late uh, 90s indie thing. When, uh, there's some baggage your max was, anyway. yeah well yeah <laughs> we'll keep it keep it moving on there but you know again I, I i feel like the fact that you know reggio and glass had had envisioned this as a trilogy um i'm glad super happy that their vision was realized and that i feel like you know what could they have done that would have been better or com- even on the same plane as kwana scotsy i don't know because kwana scotsy is just one of those kind of little minor miracles that that erupt in film every so often where somebody comes through with a genuinely different angle or a vision of what cinema can be and to me Koyana Scotsi was a, a groundbreaker in so many ways yes yes there had been visually rich documentaries before and great mergers of sound and vision and and all of that but uh, I don't know, there, there, and maybe it was just my own youthfulness and impressionability, but I feel like 
Koyaniskatsi can be said to be like a, a marker in which documentary or again, it's not really a documentary. It's not really a music video. It's not uh, it, it, it's it's a it's, it's a sensory experience that 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 is full of ideas, um, powerful images, uh, the, the combination of, of sound and, and sight and, and everything that goes into it, drawing um, unexpected and surprising connections and, and connections with, with a sufficient complexity and, and, and ambivalence and ambiguity to them that you can see new things the second, third, or fourth time around. And I think that, that to a certain extent, um, uh, applies to the, the two sequels as well. But uh, Koyana Skatsi was just a, 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 a revolution, a groundbreaker. Uh, and uh, and I think that's where it sort of stands on its own as a singular uh, work of film art. And I think you made a really good point earlier of, thank goodness they didn't just think, let's do that again. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. It does make the other movies feel even, you know, better to, I have a better taste in my mouth because they were branching. They were doing different things, trying different things. And thank mm-hmm. goodness they didn't, they didn't hit the mark as well as the first one did, but that would be, that would have been something, <laughs> you yeah. know, you yeah. can't expect that, but also um, good. You know, that's impressive. That that's wor- worthy of um, praise in and of itself mm-hmm. uh, beyond the fact that they are still uh, worth talking about, worth grappling with, worth watching and rewatching and learning more about. Because again, I, I feel like Reggio is inviting us to participate in the considerations of where we're at. And rather than just be passive, you know, m- moving through life and it just happens around us. I, I, and I think the other films do that too. And I, I, I'm just I'm glad we got to this one. This was this was this has been on my I uh, hope we get to that one soon list yeah, for some yeah. time. <laughs> um, well, it was a good discussion. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, there's there's still more that could be said if hmm. people want to drop comments or share their reactions and any of our social media posts uh, publicizing this episode. I, I'm definitely eager to hear what impressions any of these films have made, whether they're positive or or even if you don't like them or think they're overhyped or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. Um, They are discussion starters, I think, uh, par excellence, you know? And um, again, I think they, you know, Reggio and Glass did not do this to, to, to make big money. They weren't trying to start a franchise or any of the things that we, you know, commonly associate with a, a, an original film and then it's two sequels, <laughs> right? Um, he, he, they, they had a vision and I'm sure they've, they've both done well. I Philip Glass has certainly, you know, composed a lot of great music and, and probably has a, a fairly comfortable life and all of that. But uh, they really do feel like artists who are doing this for the right reasons. Uh, they, they do want to elevate, humanity or at least their their viewers their audiences and i do appreciate the uh the producers like soderbergh coppola lucas mm-hmm. who who put some of their fortune on the line to make these films uh a reality uh, knowing that their investment might take a long time to see a return <laughs> you know but they did it for the art and i i, I respect and appreciate that yeah for sure all right. Well, thanks, David. I'm excited yeah. already for uh, to get this out to the world. As you said, I'd love yes. to hear from from folks. And um, you know, we, I guess now's the part where we can tell people what's coming next. Sure. Uh, we're we're going back in time again. Back to the back to kind of the, you know, our first episode was uh, 
uh, older silent films. It was the three silent classics by, uh, you know, the Von Sternberg films. And we're going back now to the complete Jean Vigo. Uh, These are four films from the early, 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 early 1930s uh, before Vigo died at the age of, I think, only 29. Am I remembering mm-hmm. that right? Didn't even make it. To yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was tuberculosis or yeah. something like that. Right. So, uh, a brilliant career, very promising, and uh, you know, all all too tragically short. I mean, uh, I've seen the films, but I've never really immersed myself in them or done the study. I haven't watched any of the supplements. I just kind of took them in just to sort of check them off my list and see what all the hubbub was about. But I'm definitely looking forward to, uh, you know doing some further study and once again, having a great conversation with you about uh, Jean Vigo and his influence and impact on uh, French cinema and beyond from the late twenties and early (laughs) 1930s. And hopefully all health permitting, we'll be able to get to this a little bit faster on the turnaround, but uh, you know, we're enjoying the journey regardless. So thanks so much for being with me today, David, again, uh, I do walk away feeling invigorated and anxious for just to keep on, you know, engaging with this kind of stuff. So absolutely. uh, Yeah. It was good to do a (laughs) podcast again after uh, six weeks or so of uh, (laughs) unintentionally uh, quiet activity on my end, but uh, loving life and it's it's been a good season of the year and i'm glad to have had this time with you as well trevor Uh, thanks for getting me back on the horse there (laughs) oh you betcha (laughs) all right thanks everyone Bye bye